So this morning we'll be in 1 Kings 19 again, what we just read, we're going to reference that. Uh, This is part four in a five-part sermon series through the spiritual practice of silence and solitude, but specifically, kind of more dialed in than even that, this is the third of three sermons looking at Elijah's life and trying as best we can to draw out of Elijah's life a paradigm for us. And I use the word paradigm instead of plan or model or recipe or formula because each of the seven stages that we're going to spend time discussing together, that we've worked through five of them, we'll get to the last two today, uh, they remain a little bit unpredictable. I got some feedback this week that I really appreciated from a couple of you that were going, hey, I hear you saying that this thing isn't formulaic, but I also hear you saying that X, Y, and Z is sort of guaranteed to happen every single time. Can you make that make sense? And what I want you to understand is my objective is to try to give you um, sort of the best case scenario, especially because this is what's rooted in scripture, and then trust that you understand, and, and hopefully you do, that the timeline that it takes to figure out how to live life with God, it takes one human lifetime to get that far. This isn't a two week process, this isn't a 10 day process, it's not a five year plan or a 10 year plan. What I'm laying out before you, I'm hoping, is giving you a resource and a tool that will go with you for life. And you might be the kind of person, if you're like me, who, t- who thinks in terms of, well, am I getting better at that? Am I getting worse at that? Is it going well? Is it going poorly? Am I doing enough? Am I not doing enough? That's fine. You can ask all those questions and feel that way. God will be calm and steady and present the whole time that you flounder and freak out and get anxious. But eventually what you'll do is you'll sort of drop into this rhythm. You'll realize that there's space for you to just be and that God is willing to meet with you and that he is a being who just bees as well, and you'll be together, and you guys will find together, I think, a lot of peace and a lot of solace and a lot of benefit to your character and your life from being alone and being quiet with God. So Elijah's the model. We started with him two weeks ago, uh, and we're treating his example as just that, an example, an example of possibility, not necessarily a recipe in a book to follow, but an example of what can happen when we go through the seven stages of our paradigm of silence and solitude with God. Now, when we talk about silence and solitude, categorically, it's a spiritual discipline. So what that means is it's a practice. It's something that you choose to do. You engage with it repeatedly and regularly. But you do that in the interest of changing, of becoming a different kind of person, of having your character changed, your mind changed, your perspective. Maybe you come to God wanting him to take away some things that are true in your life, some fear, some anxiety that's under the surface, some concern about the future. Or you come to him because you feel that you've been reading in your Bible that you're supposed to have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, but you don't feel loving or joyful or patient or peaceful. And so we come to God and we sit in his presence hoping that by exercising these disciplines, by choosing to sort of put our uh, hand to the plow, if you will, and to go with God, that eventually change will arrive. These disciplines are exercises in our life with God. They allow us to get to know our inner life in ways that the culture and and the world that you live in doesn't. There are not very many things in your life that are asking you to dig deeply into who you are. There are not many things in your life that are forcing you to reckon with your past or to decide where you want to go, what you want your trajectory to be. Most of us live moment by moment, and we are immersed in big crowds and full calendars, and we tend to multitask almost all the time. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but you'll know, uh, probably better even than the people around you, uh, how many people in your life who you know text and drive. Everybody's on their phone, right? At every single red light. I never use my horn more until the iPhone came out, because I have to remind people that they're in a car driving on the road, because they don't know that. They think they're on the beach with whoever's Instagram photo that they're staring into, and, or they're angry at their person who's texting them rapidly. We, we just don't have a great sense of being where we are, being still, being slow, being quiet. And so this is a discipline that introduces those things, not in the interest of secular mindfulness, but in the interest of allowing us, again, to connect with God on a deeper level. Now, the kind of person who would want to engage with a spiritual discipline is the kind of person who seeks to unnumb their inner self, to push back against those things, to push back against escapism, to push back against medicating away what's wrong, what doesn't feel good, what we don't like about ourselves or our circumstances. The kinds of people who become dissatisfied by the never-ending pull of more and better. I've heard the modern life in the West being described as up and to the right, up and to the right. Everything is up and to the right. If you've ever seen a a bar graph or a chart, that's all we want to do is do more and better, more and better all the time. And that drive, though it sounds noble at face value, can be exhausting, it can be destructive, it can lead us into patterns of life that don't get us more or better, or they get us more and better, but at the cost of the things that really matter to God and to us. Spiritual disciplines for us are always rooted in the example of Jesus, 
And if not him personally, then his apprentices, who he called his disciples and who eventually became the apostles, the ones who planted the churches in the, in the beginning of the church movement. And all of these disciplines require faith because, and this is a hard concept to wrap our minds around, these are indirect. So what I mean by that is when we practice a spiritual discipline, we're choosing to do something that we can do in order to help us become the kinds of people who can do things that we can't do yet. In his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, Dallas Willard defines discipline like this. He says, discipline, strictly speaking, is activity carried on in order to prepare us indirectly for some activity other than itself. And he gives an example. He says, we do not practice the piano in order to practice the piano well. We practice the piano in order to play the piano well. So we do a thing in order to help us get better at another kind of thing. And most of us don't think this way. Most of us roll our eyes at long meetings at work, on-the-job training, extended education opportunities. We want to learn how to be better at the thing that we're doing right now. And maybe we don't know what we should be doing, so we kind of look around us in the Christian world and we buy a popular book or we go to a church where somebody's a dynamic communicator and we go, well, they seem to have it figured out, so where's my 10-step process? Give me my three things I need to do by Monday morning if I'm going to be a better Christian. Spiritual disciplines don't work that way. Now, you can force them to work that way. You can decide that they do, and you can become this expert guru at silence and solitude. You can throw away your TV and your computer and go buy a flip phone and get a digital clock for your bedside table so your phone doesn't go to bed with you, and you can sound dampen every room in your house, and you can divorce your spouse and abandon your children and go live in in the mountains in a cave and have perfect quiet. And you probably won't be an inch closer to Christ-likeness than you were before you left. So we have to make sure that we remember that the tools that we use are tools that get us to a place that we're not yet. So what does that mean for us? It means that our goal in practicing silence and solitude is not to become more isolated. It's not to become more introverted. This isn't an exercise in changing your personality. Our goal in practicing silence and solitude is to gain access to something. It's probably different for each of us, but to gain access to something in our spiritual lives that we cannot currently access. And again, maybe for you that's peace that you don't have, Maybe it's some kind of insight into a decision that you need to make. Maybe it's self-awareness. You've lived your whole life being more concerned about other people and you don't really know yourself. It could be guidance, it could be deliverance, it could be healing. But we practice silence and solitude in order to learn to live life with God because our lives are so fast by default, so loud all the time, so full to the brim. We have to discipline ourselves if we're gonna create space and time to focus on God and God alone. So Elijah's example in 1 Kings 19, it illuminates for us this seven-stage paradigm of silence and solitude. Again, not a recipe, not a money-back guarantee, but a general flow of how we typically move from far away from God's presence, not removed from God by sin, I'm talking to believers who've been saved by Jesus, but distracted and shallow and uninterested in the things of God. We move from that into the kinds of people who can come back from an experience with God, that's where we'll land the plane today, different. And we can bring some insight with us for the benefit not just of our own life, but of other people. So even though silence and solitude is a solo practice, it's still corporate, it's still for the body in the sense that as you are transformed, the body of Christ around you benefits. And I hope that that's motivating for you. So as a reminder, first Elijah rested. God brought him to the broom tree in the desert. And there he was fed, there he had water, he had his physical needs met as part of preparing him to have his spiritual needs met by God in a later stage of this extended period of quiet. Then Elijah moves into what I've called the wall. In the story of Elijah, it's a desert place. It's 40 days in a desolate place with God alone, no answer from God to Elijah's prayer, no immediate deliverance, no immediate miracle, no breakthrough moment that Elijah maybe was waiting for or hoping for. Elijah took a journey with God, and the objective of that journey was not clear to him. It was clear to God. God knew what he was doing the whole time. This is where faith is so important. We have to trust that God knows what he's doing. But Elijah doesn't know. He doesn't get a blueprint. He's not handed a map. God says, you're here. Get to that place. You have 40 days to do it. I'll see you there. And then Elijah goes, and he walks. And in that time, in that space, he learns to wait on God in the quiet. He becomes more comfortable with no response from God. Maybe that that is a kind of response to Elijah, whereas previously I think he would have considered God to be not listening if he didn't immediately answer Elijah's prayers. And in that waiting and in that working through his inner reality, Elijah gained some clarity on what was really going on inside of himself. Elijah traveled with God in quiet for 40 days and arrived at Mount Horeb. And at the mountain, God asked Elijah, why are you here? What are you doing here? I think what he's asking is, what brought you away from the city? What caused you to leave behind your career? Why are all the people who you love and who you're close to, why'd you leave them to come all the way to this mountain? 
And when Yahweh asked that question, it sparked something inside of Elijah. And he was able to give an answer verbally that both identified what it was that he was dealing with, but also named it. It gave credibility and crystallization to the idea that Elijah wasn't doing well. I think he knew something was wrong. I think he would have said it was external circumstances that were really his biggest problem. But through those 40 days in the desert, I think he comes to realize it's he himself who's carrying bitterness. It's he himself who's concerned that God maybe isn't going to keep his word. Elijah says things like, I'm the only one left. There's nobody else but me, and everybody wants to kill me. And and there's this sense of alone. I'm alone, God. I'm alone. I'm alone. Now, the irony is he's with God while he's telling God how alone he is, which is often the case in my life as well. I come to God and go, nobody's listening. Nobody cares. Nothing's changing. None of it matters. I'm all alone. And God's like, yeah, except me, the foundation of reality. I'm here, and there's three of us, so I don't even know how you're supposed to. And I'm like, oh, you're right, God. Thank you. But I need that interaction, right? Having that written on a piece of paper taped on the inside of my closet door isn't enough for me. Memorizing scriptures is helpful and leads me to keep my heart and mind on what is right and true, but memorizing what someone said is a little bit different from hearing it, just a little bit. And there's an element of coming to God and meeting with him in silence and solitude that is comforting in a way that simply reading, studying, memorizing, other disciplines aren't so comforting. Now, those disciplines are good and right and important. And you're going to hear me talk today about how transformation happens within the context of silence and solitude. I want to make sure I say often to you in this message that silence and solitude is not the only discipline. In fact, if anything, it's sort of the ground floor. It's a foundation because it's, it's a negative discipline in the sense that we have to remove things from our lives in order to make space for it. And then we're going to build back into that space practices. We're going to build back into that space rhythms and things that will ultimately draw us closer to God and remind us of who he is. But to come back to Elijah, when God asks him that question, it it sparks something in Elijah where he begins to be able to sense his inner reality, and then he names his inner reality. It's one thing to get to know yourself enough to sense who you really are, but I personally found it much more challenging to say it out loud to God or myself or anybody else. Things like, in my modern Western experience, the side effects that appear in my life of always being online. I don't want to talk about that. That's embarrassing. I want to be the same rugged American Teddy Roosevelt when men were men kind of guy, right? I don't want to be like secretly worried about whether or not my tweet is going to get enough retweets today. That feels so silly and shallow, but I have to acknowledge it and then I have to say it or it's never going to change. I can't hide who I really am behind who I think everybody else wants me to be. Silence and solitude draws me far enough away from the people around me, the after image of human contact, that I can begin to sense it, but then I got to take that hard step and I have to say it. The world and the life that I live in where I'm always plugged in, I'm always connected to other people's emotions and opinions, it has an effect on me. It has an effect on you. It makes us more aggressive. I think people are shorter of patience now than they probably ever have been. We become dangerously tired. We get out over our skis, if you've ever heard that saying, if you know what I mean, just just a moment away from totally falling flat and losing control. Many of us are more negative than ever before. We find this new sort of hopelessness has rooted itself, sometimes even to the extreme point of becoming fatalistic where we just want to give up and go, is anything ever going to change? Is it ever going to matter? Is the world just burning around us and everybody we know is sadder and and more hurt and more distant than they've ever been? This is the way that your world that you live in is discipling you. It's shaping and forming you into the image of itself that you would become more negative, that you would become more interested in meeting your own cravings or trying to find happiness within your own definition instead of what God wants to do, which is bring you into a place where you're above all of that. Not in a snooty way where you look down your nose at people who have problems that you don't have, but in a way where you find peace. You come far enough up the mountain that you get out of the smog that's down there at the bottom with everybody else. What we're going to see today, though, is we don't stay in that position. God sends us back down. Now, here's a big danger for you and I, and maybe this will hook you, if nothing else I've said today has. Some of us are so discipled by the world that we bring this worldly work ethic not just being a hard worker, but needing to find our identity in our success, in our in a productivity, what I call workaholism. We bring that with us into the church, even in how we strive to serve the church. So what I'm talking to you about, I'm not immune to simply because I have pastor in my job title. If anything, there are patterns in my life and in the world that I come from, the way that I was discipled into this position, that are even kind of more sneaky and more under the service and more supposed to be hard for you to detect because we learn as Christian leaders often not how to be healthy but how to sound healthy. I don't know if you know that or not, but I can say that to you on behalf of everybody who's ever preached a sermon. We worry about what you think about us just as much as you worry about what we think about you. We just have to get up here in front of 200 of you at a time and sort of act like we don't. 
Now, we, do, we ought not be dishonest. This is part of where silence and solitude comes to the surface in, in my life. It's where I need this, is I have to even get away with God personally in a way that's different from how I study and prepare to preach to you or to teach to you so that I can know God as well. But what happens to us? When we become the kinds of people who get out over our skis, who are unbalanced, who are hurtling forward into the future at such a speed that if anything goes wrong, we're necessarily going to crash when we hit that wall, I think Pete Scazzaro gets it right when he says this in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. He says, work for God that is not nourished by a deep interior life with God will eventually be contaminated with other things, things like ego and power and needing approval of and from others, and buying into the wrong ideas of success and the mistaken belief that we can't fail. And I think what he means by that is both that we're not able to fail and that we can't handle failure, both of those things. He goes on to say, when we work for God because of these things, our experience of the gospel often falls off center. I love this language. We become human doings, not human beings. Our experiential sense of worth our experiential sense of validation gradually shifts from God's unconditional love for us in Christ to our works and our performance. The joy of Christ gradually disappears, and our activity for God can only properly flow from, from, a, excuse me, from a life with God. Now, Elijah named this inner reality for himself. I believe that he knew that he had become overworked. He was obviously scared for his life, which is not a position out of which any of us can make good decisions. He had almost no self-awareness. I think that's so funny where he's shouting at God over and over again, God, take my life, and yet he ran from Jezebel who was trying to kill him. If he wanted to die, all he had to do was stay put, but he runs as fast as he can away from someone who wants to kill him, and as soon as he meets God, he says, kill me. And God's gotta be going, what? Don't make this my problem, okay? I wasn't hunting you down. You didn't need to come all the way out here to do this with me. But he he realizes, I think, that as he becomes more self-aware, that he doesn't really need to die. That's not the solution to his problems. Escapism, fatalism, that's not really what he needs. He needs to find a way to live again. And he admits that he's lost his way. That's why he comes to God and asks him for guidance. And I think that's what brings us into silence and solitude. Maybe not to that great percentage. Maybe you're not 100% fatalist every morning when you wake up and the alarm clock goes off. But there are bits and pieces of our lives where we begin to foster despair. We begin to really have anxiety and dread the same kinds of things that happen every day in our lives. And I think when we can bring those things to God in silence and solitude, we can trust that he will change those things. Now, naming all of that for Elijah begins the process of dialogue with God. And so I want to bring you back to the scriptures and quickly read what you heard Nate read. It's been a few minutes since we looked at this. And then we're going to land the plane on this seven-stage paradigm today. So, verse 9. Elijah came to a cave, and he lodged inside that cave. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to Elijah, and he said to Elijah, what are you doing here? He asked him that question. Elijah said, well, I've been very jealous for you, Yahweh. You are the God of hosts. And here's why. Because the people of Israel have forsaken. They've abandoned your covenant, your promises. They've thrown down your altars. They're tearing down the churches and the temples. And they've killed all your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now again, don't miss the irony here. Elijah ran away from a person who wanted to kill him. Then he told God, please kill me. And now he's saying, everybody wants to kill me. Help me with that. And God's, I mean, I don't know the mind of God. He knew Elijah was going to do all that. He's probably more patient than I am. I would be rolling my eyes a little bit, okay? I don't know if God has eyes, but if he does, a little bit of roll there. Okay, verse 11. Here's what he says. He goes, okay, we're going to do this together. Go out of this cave that you're in, and I want you to stand there in front of or nearby me, Yahweh. And behold, This is what happened. Yahweh passed by, and first came a great and strong wind that tore the mountains and broke them into pieces. But Yahweh was not to be found inside the wind. And after the wind, there came an earthquake, but also Yahweh was not within the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire, then came the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out, and he stood at the entrance of the cave, and behold, there came to him a voice that said the same question that he asked him before. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah answered the exact same answer. I've been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. Now they seek my life to take it away. And then Yahweh said to him, okay, go then. Here's what we're gonna do. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Then you'll anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, to be king over Israel. And Elisha, who is the son of Shaphat, who lives in Abel Maholah, you shall appoint him to be the next prophet in your place. And the one who escapes the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to the death. The one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. 
Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel and all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So Elijah becomes a different kind of person. And maybe it's not immediately obvious to you. I want to try to draw that out. But I want you to first consider the New Testament model that you and I follow. Okay? In the New Testament, in the books that begin with Mark, Matthew and end with Revelation, the word that the Bible uses, really the word that the disciples of Jesus use most often to describe the kind of change that happens when people go through what Elijah went through, the word is transformation. It's a word that we use a lot here at True North. You've probably heard me say it before. Transformation is an English word, but it comes to us by way of the Greek word metamorphosis, which is itself two words, okay? So you know where I'm going here. First, we have the word meta, recently made famous by Mark Zuckerberg. I'm not sure he totally understands the Greek root of that. What it means for the sake of our argument today is the being, the essence of who we really are, the stuff that makes us us. That's the meta of our lives. And then morphosis, morph, to change, to be essentially change, not to change behavior, not to change attitude, not to get some new ideas or to switch political parties or whatever you might think that means. It means to essentially become a different kind of meta, of person. Not a new name necessarily, all right, but, but you know the way Jesus talked, right? Remember in John chapter 3 when he meets with Nicodemus at nighttime? He says to Nicodemus, if you want to come into the kingdom, the kingdom that I rule, that the Father rules, there has to be a second sense, a sense of birth again. You got to kind of go back, and of course Nicodemus gets tongue-tied and goes, well, How am I going to go back up inside my mother's womb? That's crazy and gross. I don't want to do that. And Jesus says, no, that's not what I mean. I mean, spiritually, there has to be rebirth inside of you. There has to be restoration and newness of life. That's what is going on with Elijah. The same kind of transformation is in play here, okay? Metamorphosis is, if this is a good word picture for you, it's what happens when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. It's not that God took one caterpillar away and sent one new butterfly from heaven. He turned the caterpillar into the butterfly. There's a difference there. God doesn't use obliteration in order to restore us. He actually restores and transforms what we were made of before we met him, which I would argue is probably much harder to do than simply exploding the old person and just magically bringing a new one in from the heaven factory where people get made. Okay, what God does is he says, I'm gonna take everything that is you, all the parts, the personality, the background, and I'm gonna find a way to redeem those things. And that's Elijah's experience with God on the mountain. The sixth stage of silence and solitude after we have begun a dialogue with God is to be transformed. It's transformation. So if you're taking notes today, you might write that down if you've had the other five in your notebook. This is number six, transformation. As Elijah speaks with God, as he shares his deepest self with God, he becomes transformed. Not by the wind, which is interesting. Not by the earthquake, not by the fire. Certainly God could have used those things to transform Elijah, at least physically, right? Could have burned him up or blown him away or dropped him into a big hole in the ground. But God shows that power and then comes personally within the quiet. It's the presence of Yahweh. It's the person of God nearby in Elijah's life that produces the change. And this is the exact same miracle that Jesus offers to people like you and I under the new covenant in the New Testament. When Jesus invites us to follow him into his kingdom, he is offering us not the fire, not the wind, not the earthquake, but the nearness of God, the person of God to meet with us, to know us, for us to share our deepest inner reality with. To quote the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, we, believers, followers of Jesus, with our faces unveiled, which is New Testament language that we don't have time to get into today, but essentially people who've been saved by God behold the glory of the Lord and as a result are being transformed into the same image that we see from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And that verse falls perfectly in line with John 14 and Romans 8, where we were last week, that the expectation from Jesus' perspective is that the Spirit of God is with us and is speaking to us and is working on us and with us. As followers of Jesus and because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we have a massive advantage over a guy like Elijah. Paul says that we can look around us and see the glory of God, things like his love, his mercy, his power, his plan, his control, his forgiveness. We can see these in ways that transform us into what we see. So by seeing God's love, we become more loving. By staring into God's mercy, we ourselves become more merciful. We become more disciplined. We become more faithful, more forgiving, simply by being with God. This is the work of silence and solitude, is to just look, to just face the thing, to face the thing that's within us and then turn our eyes to Jesus and look at him and just wait and be. And I am sure that it, probably over half of you, maybe three quarters of you, don't believe that that's possible. 
because I live in the same world that you do. I grew up reading textbooks that had step A and B and C and systematized everything from language to numbers to art and music to drawing and the color scheme even goes on a wheel where everything is quantifiable and all of it makes sense and it's a closed system. Everything in our lives has taught us that if we want something to change, we have to be doing something. But at the beginning with God, it was only about being. Think of the garden. The garden wasn't an accident. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a pipe dream. It was the objective. It was the point. The whole purpose was to simply be in a place where God put us with God. That's what's available to you. I know it's counterintuitive. I know that it goes against the grain. If you're like me, it's going to drive you nuts to sit still when you think that you could be studying Greek or you could be reading the Desert Fathers of church history or you could be in theological debate or watching a YouTube video of a great pastor or, or doing or consuming or listening or hearing. We have to be. And if we choose not to, we won't change. And that's okay. We don't have to change. God will love us anyway. He's loved us the whole time that we've been backwards up to this point. We can stay backwards. That's all right. But if we really want to change, if we want a different kind of life, we have to change the lifestyle. And the lifestyle change that I'm encouraging you to make a part of your life is to be quiet with God, to just be with him. If you will do that, you will change. This is what transformation is about. It's about becoming like Jesus by togetherness. By simply being together with him. That's the operative action of transformation when it comes to silence and solitude. Again, church, don't misunderstand me. There are lots of ways to be changed by God. Many. Many will be upstream for you. They'll be hard. Others will be downstream. They'll be easy. If you're an introvert like me, seven, eight hours of silence and solitude sounds like the beginning of a great vacation. If you're an extrovert, you're like, I'll just go to jail. At least there's people in jail. I don't know. I could... (laughs) I'll have somebody to talk to, a captive audience, no pun intended, right? So, so we, we see these things in different ways. Yeah, that was good, wasn't it? We see these things in different ways. What I'm encouraging you to do is try, to just try. Okay, don't, don't bet the house on whether or not you get this right, but just try to introduce this a little bit. For some of you, you'll love it. It'll be an oasis in your life. It'll be a balm to your soul. You'll want more and more and more, and you'll have to be disciplined against becoming a hermit in the mountains, And others of us will go, this is crazy and I hate it, but maybe one day a week I can be quiet for 10 minutes. And maybe that's enough. Maybe that's all I could do. I think of the Apostle Peter, who rarely has his mouth closed in any of the Gospels. He is almost always talking, and he's usually wrong. He would benefit from spending some time at the feet of Jesus in quiet listening. Maybe you relate to that. Maybe your mouth is almost never closed, and you're almost always wrong. I don't know. I'm not looking at any of you. I'm not thinking of anybody, okay? That's certainly been true in stages of my life before, so I can identify. There's mercy for us. But what we find is, when we sit with God in togetherness, that we become like Jesus. And simply being with him, things happen that won't happen in any other venue. In that quiet, still place. Think of Elijah. There's a context in which a windstorm is very helpful. There's a context in which a fire is very helpful. There's a context in which an earthquake is very helpful. But for Elijah's specific walk with God, what he needed was the quiet. So if you will, look back at verse 12, okay? I want you to catch the second sentence in verse 12. I think this is really important. If you're following along in the English Standard Version, which is the version I read from for the sake of our sermons on Sunday mornings, then your Bible will tell you that the voice of God came to Elijah in the sound of a low whisper. And that's an okay interpretation of the Hebrew words. The Hebrew words that the ESV translates as low whisper can also be translated as calm or silence or stillness. But I want you to see, we have it for you on the screens, how the New Revised Standard Version translates verse 12. It says this, and after the earthquake came a fire, but Yahweh was not in the fire, and after the fire came the sound, and this is ironic, the sound of sheer silence. Have you ever heard the phrase, the silence was deafening? Maybe you feel like that when I ask you to be quiet for 60 seconds after these sermons in this series, where the quiet is so heavy it's almost tangible, palpable, you can feel it. Your your eardrums do that weird thing where they ring even though there's no sound because it's so loud in your life 24-7, right? I think that that's a really interesting way to consider what it is that's happening to Elijah on the mountainside. Sheer silence, total quiet, the kind that you would have to climb pretty high in the mountains to find today. And I imagine that part of why that silence was so deafening to Elijah was because of how loud the roar of the wind and the earthquake and the fire must have been. Now, I want you to pay close attention to exactly what's happening here. When God speaks in verse 13, he speaks to Elijah out of this sheer silence that exists between them. Elijah's experience with silence and solitude up to this point, the previous five stages, have been good, and I think they've been helpful to him. I think it would have been good for Elijah to just take a nap under the broom tree and go back to reality, that he still would have been a more healthy, whole person if he'd only made it as far as stage one, even if he'd bounced off stage two like many of us do, if he'd gotten to the wall and gone, 
This isn't for me. It doesn't fit my personality. I don't like it. I'm uncomfortable. Too many people need me out there in the real world, and so I'm out of here. I still think he would have been better. But he doesn't arrive at sort of the inner room of his relationship with God until he comes to this point where he can handle the sheer silence. This particular silence, after the chaos dies down, is where Elijah realizes that the kind of interaction that he needs with God is less fire from heaven. That's 1 Kings 18, where God sends the fire down to Mount Carmel and burns up all the animal sacrifices. It's less of that that Elijah needs, and it's more so the intimate, personal, dwelling together of shared silence. This shared space with God is where we enter in and we learn to dwell with God and we learn to open ourselves to him. And then as we linger with him and as he speaks to us, and I hesitate to even use the word speak because maybe sometimes it is words, sometimes it's an image, it's an idea, it's a feeling, it's a sense of clarity. We begin to respond to his presence and we change. And I don't know if you believe this or not. I don't know if a pastor's ever told you you're allowed to hope for this or work toward this goal, but we can be transformed like that. This isn't spooky Old Testament, God did it one time and he never meant to do it again. This was always the plan until we broke things with our own sin. It was our wickedness that drove a wedge between us and God. From the beginning, God's objective was to be in communication with us, in conversation, dwelling together, leading, guiding, comforting, asking, listening, quiet, speaking, all of it. That's the relationship and it's available to you and I. Now the good news is, you and I don't have to book a trip to the Sinai Peninsula and climb Mount Horeb to find God. God is with us today. You can meet with him right now. It could happen in this room or a room like this. It can happen in your bedroom at home. It can happen behind the wheel of your vehicle today if you drive somewhere. It can happen in your garage. It can happen in a closet in the back of your house. Or if you're like Susanna Wesley, who lived in the 1700s, you guys may know her as the mother of Charles and John Wesley. These are the guys who began the Wesleyan and Methodist church movements, the sort of Protestant revival in England. Um, You might have to be a little bit more creative. Here's Susanna's story. I think you'll get a kick out of this. Um, In the early 1700s, Susanna, whose husband was a traveling preacher, and if you read much about him, was not a very good husband, father, or pastor, but she was a great lady, and she stuck it out with him and and stayed in the marriage. Um, She would spend around two hours a day in Bible study and prayer, and I want you to know, I'm telling you this story not to try to make you think that this is the bare minimum or that you should feel bad if you don't do this. I want you to understand that this lady realized how important this was, and she made it happen no matter what it cost her. She was like, if this is how I'm going to be with God, I'm going to be with God no matter what. So despite being a full-time mother to 10 children, yes, and she had them all in a row, so for a while she had 10 kids under 12 years old, which is just nonsense in my opinion, but that's, that was her life, and she survived it, man. She did a good job. You can assume in a home like that, a small home in urban London, 10 children, a dad who's gone most of the time, and there's Susanna. She's homeschooling, she's cooking, she's cleaning, she's getting the kids to bed, she's getting them back out of bed, and she's still trying to find 120 minutes to be with God every 24 hours. It wasn't easy, right? It makes sense to you. This is a chaotic environment. There's no privacy in a home overflowing with little kids that are always yanking on the end of your dress and needing you to look at what they made or answer your question or help them go to the bathroom or give them a bath or feed them or put them to bed or put them back to bed or put them back to bed again because they won't stay in bed. This is Susanna's reality. So here's her solution. When Susanna reached the point in her day where either she ran out of gas and she knew she was going to explode on her kids or when she was better prepared, she would cut that off before it would arrive. She would get with God earlier in the day before she reached the end of herself. Her solution was to pick up her Bible. She would go to her reading chair in the living room and she would take her floor-length apron that she wore every day and she would put it over her head and make a tent. And she didn't tell anybody that, that she was going to do this. She would be in the middle of conversation with her kids, something would happen, and she would just grab her Bible, walk to the chair, and all the kids were like, okay, we know what this means, we don't talk to mom, okay? She trained her children, so the older kids took care of the younger kids in that space, and they knew, unless there was an emergency, they were going to leave mama alone in the chair until she came out from underneath her apron. Now, for you and I, that sounds probably more like a psychotic break than a spiritual discipline, okay? But what I want you to understand is there's no magic to this thing. I have tried to make it a little bit formulaic for you because I think most of you have never heard about anything like this before. But the objective is to get into God's presence and if it requires you to grab a blanket off the couch and make a little tent and put your headlamp on that you normally only use in the winter and sit there in God's presence, that's fine. That's not less meaningful than you having this well-curated corner of your bedroom with your favorite chair and just the right lighting and a warm blanket and a cup of coffee and your phone so you can take lots of Instagram pictures of your space and a potted plant and your view of the mountains. If you have the, the bandwidth and the space to carve that out, by all means do it. 
make a sacred space and go there and be with God. But if you can't, that does not mean that God is not available to you. When Jesus died on the cross, this amazing thing happened in the temple in Jerusalem where the veil that sat between the Holy of Holies where the Spirit of God dwelled and all the rest of humankind, that veil was torn. And it wasn't torn from bottom to top, meaning that people had finally climbed the ladder and gotten to God. It was torn from top to bottom, meaning that God had come to his people and had removed every barrier that would have limited their ability to be with him. He restored what we lost in the garden. That's available to you. I don't know how to make it more plain. When and where you can acknowledge the presence of God, those are the right times and those are the right places. It's okay to be like Susanna. Again, not, I'm not trying to hold this over your head, especially if you're a young mom with lots of kids. I don't need you to go home, get a floor-length apron and put it over your head this week. God's not asking you to do that either. But I want you to understand, when this is important, we find a way to do it. When we realize what's available to us in the presence of God that we can't find or access anywhere else, it begins to become important enough that we shed other things. Maybe things that are important, but things that are less important than being with God. Thankfully, like Susanna Wesley, we don't have to travel to the holy mountain in Israel like Elijah did to find God. A space as mundane as our own living room, sitting under a blanket or an apron, can be the place where heaven and earth collide. Jesus said this in John 14. He told his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, so let not your hearts be troubled, and neither let them be afraid. Now when Jesus is talking about that, he's describing what will begin to happen in your life if you meet with God on a regular basis. He has more in mind than a lack of conflict or a superficial quiet when he talks about peace. In the ancient Hebrew world, which is what Jesus is referencing, that's where he's sourcing his definition of peace, The peace that God offers to all of creation is called shalom. You may have heard that word before. In his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, Cornelius Plantinga wrote this about shalom. He says, the webbing together of God, humans, and all of creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Shalom, in other words, is the way that things ought to be. Shalom is what Susanna found under her apron. Shalom is what Elijah found in the sheer silence of God's presence at Mount Horeb. God's answer to Elijah can be summarized as God saying, I'm going to set things the way that they should be. I'm going to bring shalom to the earth, which is always what God is working to do. That's what we mean when we say the ministry of reconciliation. It's restoring the shalom, the right order of God and man and creation as it was supposed to be from the very beginning. In other words, Elijah does not immediately get a miracle hand-delivered by God at the end of his long journey through the desert, up the mountain, and into God's presence. In fact, Elijah's circumstances don't change at all. And I don't want that to be lost on you. The queen's still hunting for his head. If you read 1 Kings 20 and 21, you'll see that uh, in the beginning of 2 Kings, you'll see that Elijah is still hunted to the day that he goes to heaven. He never becomes a favorite in the nation of Israel ever again. Only the other small pockets of prophets even know who he is and acknowledge him. He lives in relative obscurity. He doesn't do everything that God told him to do right away. It takes him years, and only at the very end of his ministry does he have any real sense of identity or calling or anything like that. Everything before that point is just him doing his best to try to stay close to God and do what God has asked him to do, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it isn't very fun. Elijah never experiences widespread acceptance in Israel. He has to live out his days in the southern half of the nation away from the king's influence so he doesn't get his head chopped off. Elijah's circumstances are not changed by being in the presence of God, but Elijah is changed. That's the key. Shalom comes to Elijah's inner person, not to his circumstances. Elijah is transformed into a person who can stay faithful to Yahweh and who gains the capacity. Remember that definition of discipline. By being alone with God, Elijah gains access to a thing. He gains the capacity to something he couldn't do before, to face down the very things that scared him so badly that he ran away from them into the desert in the first place. Shalom does not come to Elijah as some kind of supernatural transformation of everything and everyone around him. Shalom comes to Elijah as supernatural transformation of himself, that he would become the way that he ought to be. How do I know that he's a different man? Look at verses 15 and 19, okay? I'm going to try to combine these together around the answer that God gives to Elijah. In these verses, we find the seventh and final stage of silence and solitude, which is coming back changed. So here's how those verses work together. Yahweh says to Elijah in verse 15, go and return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Other translations read that as go back the way you came. 
And then in verse 19, that's what Elijah does. He departed and goes back through the desert toward Damascus the way that he came. Now, we know that Elijah is different after his dialogue with Yahweh in the desolate place. Now, he has to go back home. He doesn't get to stay on the mountain. He doesn't get to be that hermit. Maybe he was an introvert like me, and he's like, great, I've achieved nirvana. I will live in this cave. God will send an angel to feed me bread and water, and I'll simply sit in the silence with God and never have to deal with any other idiot the rest of my life. The Bible doesn't say that. I'm just saying that could be maybe what's going on in Elijah's head. We don't know. But instead of giving Elijah the chance to just stay at this mountaintop place, God says, you got to go back, and you're going to go back the way that you came. Yahweh sent him back across the desert toward Beersheba, or how we say Beersheba, and eventually to Damascus. And isn't it interesting that God sent Elijah back the way he came and not some new way? He didn't send him into some new calling, some new land of opportunity or success or blessing as we would define blessing. Instead, Elijah has to go back along the path that he walked, the path of his pain the path that takes him back toward the danger, back toward the anxiety of his broken relationships, back into the world that he wanted so badly to leave behind when he ran from Jezreel and Queen Jezebel in the first place. Now, I mentioned to you last week, just to make this a little more personal, that I've been in counseling for a few months. And I've had a handful of these kinds of experiences in that setting as I set aside time after those sessions to process through parts of my past, to try to understand who I am and even why I am the way that I am. And whenever I get a sense of clarity or triumph, what my instincts want to do, what I want to do is move from that clarity and triumph into some new opportunity. I want God to do a new thing in my life. I want a fresh relationship. I want to start over. The last thing I want to have to do is go back to those broken relationships that shaped me and try to be a different person in the same setting. I'm hoping, man, God, I worked through all this. Maybe this means the church is going to grow really fast. Or I'm going to get a book deal, even though I've never even tried to write a book. Maybe God will do that so my family can go on more vacations with my book royalties. Or, or I can have some breakthrough in the preaching ministry of the church. Or God will bring some amazing leaders to join our team as elders or deacons. I want God to answer the growth in my life by like paying me, rewarding me somehow, going, oh, what a great job. Here's your trophy. You earned it for simply admitting what I've always known to be true about you. That's the, the operative attitude that I often have. And if we're not careful, especially if we come into silence and solitude seeking a sort of ecstatic emotional experience, if we think that we've had that, we will almost always fail to realize that God is 100% of the time going to send us right back down to the earth that we came from, right back down the mountain into the same circumstances among the same people, and that's where the change and the experience and the quiet and the intimacy with God, they really crystallize. They become real when we decide whether or not we're going to carry those things with us back into the real world or we're going to keep that version of ourselves up on the mountain. So here's a question for you. Can you only be a Christian when you're at church on Sunday? Now, I'm not asking you if you're trying to be a Christian at work. This isn't a sermon about are you evangelizing your coworkers. I'm simply saying to you, do you feel like a different person when you're here? Do you feel like a different person at a retreat? Do you feel like a different person when you were a student and you used to go to summer camp? Did you feel that you had changed, but then as soon as the bus was pulling out of the parking lot, that change stayed behind? Because if so, you may have been transformed, but if we don't get to the stage where we come back changed, this remains individual and solo and relatively unhelpful. All it really produces for us is guilt as we go back into our real life because we can't reproduce the experience that we had at the mountaintop. What we need is to come back changed such that what God does isn't just for us, but is for the corporate good of the body, of our spouse, of our children, of our own parents, even if we're adults, of grandchildren in our future, of our coworkers. I'm not saying that God's going to just pump you up with spiritual adrenaline and you're going to make everybody around you a Christian in the next 24 hours. I'm saying if, for example, you go into silence and solitude and by being exposed to God's presence, you realize you have got to let go of your fear of the future. And God is standing there and he's saying, I'm ready. I'll take it. I'll take it. And maybe you can visualize it in a certain way. Maybe for you it's connected to a, a trauma, a crisis, a relationship, and you see that person's face again in your head. And you're holding that, and you're saying to God, I want to run from this. I want to pull my phone out. I want to run back to the PlayStation. I want to be on Twitter. I want to eat a Twinkie. I want to have some ice cream. I want to go to the movies. Whatever that thing is where your body begins to betray your maturity, and you run back into what you've always used to cover yourself up so you don't have to see the truth. And you don't have to tell the truth. We sit in that moment with it and we hold it and we say, okay, God, I don't even know how to give this to you. I would have done it a long time ago, but you're asking for it, so I'm just going to hold it here. I'm just going to trust you. I have this visual image. I don't know if this makes any sense to you, but in my life when I've had decisions to make, I come into God's presence. I'm always in God's presence, but I don't think that I am. So I do the work I need to do to acknowledge what's already true. 
And I visualize, like, based on kind of the Old Testament picture of people touching God or touching the ark and they just, like, evaporate, I, I visualize sort of this, like, river of fire overhead of me that's like, what's going on in eternity? God's glory, he's powerful, he's amazing, he's in control, and I'm down here underneath. Like, I can feel the heat, I know it's there. I've had moments where I kind of poke my head up and it's a little overwhelming, but it's good, and I know I'm gonna get there eventually. But when I have this decision in front of me or I have a piece of baggage that I'm carrying, I, I visualize it, truly. I visualize holding it in my hands and lifting it up into that overhead river of fire to the point that I can't see it anymore. It's immersed from underneath. And I'm, I just hold it there and I just say to God, I'm giving this to you. I don't know what to do with this. I'm scared of what's gonna happen. I really can't visualize my life without it, but I've got, I've got to let go because it's killing me. It's driving me crazy. It's ruining my relationships. I can't think about anything else. And so I just hold it up in there while I'm singing, while I'm praying, while I'm in the quiet. And when the time is up, I bring my hands back down and I just check and see, is it still there? Or did God take it? If it's still mine, then I trust that that's okay and I'll be able to walk with it. And if it's gone, then I go, okay, God took it. And that's what I needed him to do, even if I didn't want him to. We come into this place, we do the thing, we make the offering, we give it to God, but we have to come back down to the earth again. We have to go back into those relationships and we have to try to take that change, not just the ecstatic experience, but the real change in us back into the places that we live. What I wanna do is move on from there, right? I wanna ignore my junk, everything that was that drove me into a space of self-examination with God in the first place, I wanna ignore all of it, but that's not the way that it works. God didn't give Elijah the chance to go down a different way. He sent him back the way that he came. And don't misunderstand, God did not do this to be spiteful, to be unkind, to be overly controlling or a bully in Elijah's life. He did it so that the transformation he experienced, Elijah experienced in God's presence, would crystallize into a changed life, to go from nice ideas to reality. It's hard to come back down to your circumstances from the mountaintop, but it's when you get back down to where you came from that you can really see it. You can realize just how different you are. Stage seven of silence and solitude is coming back changed, and coming back changed is about living into the presence of God outside of silence and solitude. It's learning to take that thing that you found with you the rest of your time. And that's where you'll know if your silence and solitude is quote-unquote working. I know some of you are type A. No matter what I say, you're still looking for the step to take. You're looking for the metric. i got to measure this thing. i got to know if it's working. Is it worth my time? Is it a waste of time? If you need something like that, if you need a measuring stick, here it is. If you have found a way to acknowledge and experience the presence of God outside of silence and solitude, then silence and solitude is doing its job. It's bringing you down so that your feet touch the ground. It's calming you down. It's helping you be, in a healthy way, a little bit disconnected from everybody around you so you're not constantly emotionally available to them, being pulled and yanked left and right by everybody else's needs, and you learn to acknowledge and remember that what you've experienced in the quiet place, when you're really at your strongest, can go with you back into the places that make you weak. And I'm not just talking about sinful things. I'm talking about people pulling on you and needing your attention and wanting you to help them. So that's what we do. We re-enter the chaos that we left behind with a new understanding of who we are and a better idea of who God is. And that's as far as we're going to get today. Next week, if you're back with us, we'll discuss coming back changed in a little bit more detail. I'm going to try to help you see how this paradigm is evident throughout the Bible. The way that God works is he draws people away, he changes them, and then he sends them back. And I'm going to try to give you some examples of that and maybe help you set some expectations for how God might transform your life and what he might want you to do with that transformation. Um, this week's midweek teaching, so if you don't know, we've been doing an, an auxiliary supplemental teaching that comes out about Wednesday or Thursday uh, every week. Uh, this week, the one that I'm going to do is going to deal a little bit with the indirect nature of spiritual discipline. How do we participate in things that allow us to work on stuff that we can't access directly? How we benefit from silence and solitude and why it's good to be in the passenger seat with Jesus. Um, and if you've missed that, if you've missed any part of the series, including the midweek teachings, they're all on the website, and I hope that you'll access them there. I want them to be a tool. I don't care how many views we get. I want you to be able to figure out how to go with God as best you can. So last thing we'll do this morning before we pray, and then we're going to participate in communion, is we're going to be quiet together. And we're four weeks into this thing, okay? So we're going to raise the stakes a little bit, and we're going to be quiet for two minutes instead of just one. I know, it sounds hard. You can do it, okay? Just endure if you have to count to 120. That's about how long you'll have. So just count your numbers in your head, and we'll get through it. When we're done, I'll pray for us. And then Mike Ottenweller is going to come up and walk us through uh, communion together. So we're going to be a little bit quiet. Your two minutes, church, begins right now.
Father, we love you. And uh, we, we, want to, we want to know you well. We want to experience you, God, as best we can and to find our way um, out of the chaos that we live with and the hectic pacing and the hurry and the anxiety and, and really into your presence, God. And so I pray that as we uh, do our best together to, to try and navigate our relationship with you, that you'd remind us that there's mercy for all of us in all of our circumstances, God, at whatever stage of the game we're in, if we're the kind of person who is obsessed with making progress or those who really could not possibly care less, that we would remember that these things are only as good as they help us remember you and be with you and know you and be changed by you. So God, bless us. Bless this church, please. Bless our families and our children. Let us be the kinds of people who are always becoming more like you, growing in grace and strength and compassion and forgiveness for one another. So we love you, God. Thank you uh, for being with us, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.